0: Hi. Hi. So you saw, uh, if you saw Jill and, and Colin up here praying, um, the family member that Jill lost was about 25 years old. Uh, she got pneumonia and went to the hospital and didn't come back out and uh, left behind two small children. So um, they are in dire need of prayer, um, peace, strength, so keep, keep that in mind as you're going through your week this week. So uh, several months ago, um, my wife yells at me and says, well, she didn't yell at me. She says, Rob, come here. It's raining in the basement. Those are words you want to hear. There are times I will bluntly tell you when I'm really glad it's not my house. It's the church's house. Um, because if it is a huge problem, I get to call the lovely folks at Facilities and Planning and say, hey guys, guess what, right? And if you, you're a homeowner, wouldn't it be nice to have somebody you could just call and say, hey guys, guess what? But it's, it's raining in our basement and I, I run downstairs and unfortunately it's rained there before um, when the in the middle bathroom of our house when the water gets too high in the tub because a kid fell asleep while running bathwater who shall remain nameless. Um, it hits the overflow valve. It goes up and over and down into the basement. So I'm up in the basement looking at this and I'm like, he did it again? Oh, wait, I might have just... Anyways, he or she did it again? And... Uh, So I run back upstairs and I'm bursting, and he didn't do it again. The water was not that high. It turned out there was actually a crack in the bathtub. The bathtub had just worn out because things wear out, right? After they get old, they wear out. The bathtub had worn out, there was a crack in the tub. And so we called a repair facilities, called a repairman. They lined somebody up to solve the problem, and so the, the guy had to come in, he, great job, but he came in and he tore out all of the bathtub, and he tore out the surround and tore out everything else, and he was ready to go put a new one in, but before he could do that, he realized that deep down underneath the, and behind the tub and behind the stuff, the surround was a whole lot more rot and damage and mold. And so he had to pull out tons of drywall. We had to put fans on things and let it dry out. We had to do some disinfecting to make sure that no more mold would regrow. I mean, it was an entire project, but you don't see the tiny details of what's going on underneath until you pull away the big stuff, right? And the truth is, if he had been a less than savory contractor, which he's not, he could have easily just chucked a tub and put the drywall back up, and or put the surround up, and moved on with life, and we wouldn't have been none the wiser for years, right? But he didn't. And, and so there's something to be said for the work that he did. It was critical to ensure the health of our family, um, and the integrity of a parsonage because it is an investment, right? It's the, and all kidding aside, the church owns it and, and it's an investment made on the part of the church and so it's, it's important that we take, we take care of it, right? Um, so, what does that have to do with Revelation? <laughs> uh, and no, the bathtub cracking is not a sign that Jesus' return is imminent. But when we ended last week, we ended in the beginning parts of chapter 19 with this, this celebration right? The celebration in the heavens where where they're repeatedly saying hallelujah, right? You've got angels saying hallelujah, and you've got 24 elders singing hallelujah, and and you've got all the masses, everyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation, they are singing hallelujah to the Lord. They're celebrating that the darkness is, is gone, and it has been replaced by God, right? The thing is, they're not quite done yet see underneath still in, in the story underneath still is some underlying challenges there's still some evil left they're celebrating which is important for us to know they're rejoicing and celebrating even though the victory is not visibly upon them yet now think about that as followers of Jesus it's easy to get bogged down by the brokenness and the darkness and the pain in this world and forget to celebrate that the victory is already won. Okay? So I don't want to fly past that. I want to I remember and recognize that, that they are celebrating even though the victory is not complete yet. They're celebrating because it's inevitable. And it's important for us to remember as we go through life that God's victory is, in fact, inevitable. Even when you're frightened, even when you're hurting, even when you're angry, even when you see tragedy go on around you and you think, are you kidding me? God's victory is inevitable. And that's a hope that we as followers of Jesus have to hold on to with all of who we are because it's a hope the world needs to see. And so as they're celebrating, we're gonna gonna continue in in Revelation 19. We're gonna pick up in verse 11. So as they're celebrating, then we see something else happen. The next thing that happens is this. John says, I see. Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse, and its rider called Faithful and True, and, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one except that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name was called the word of God. Who is this that is showing up in the midst of this vision? Jesus. This is Jesus. You remember Jesus from chapter 1? Jesus from chapter 1 with the, with the flowing hair and the fiery eyes and the, and the sword coming out of his mouth. This is Jesus riding in like no, no Western movie with the hero riding in on the horse has anything on this. This is Jesus showing up in a huge way. But we also need to contrast some things here. If you remember in Revelation 6, when the first seal was opened, there was another that rode in on a white horse. Right? Right? And we said he was what? Does anybody remember? False prophet. Walks like a duck, flies like a duck, doesn't quack like a duck, right? Looks like all the things that are godly and holy, but sounds like the dragon. Remember that phrase? And so, but this, this is different this is Jesus himself, and we know this because this is, Jesus came in judging and making war with justice. Justice, our, our just God is showing up and doing the just thing. Unlike this previous writer that showed up just to make war and just to conquer. That was their whole purpose. This writer, who is Jesus, is showing up to administer justice, to make things right, which means something was still wrong. And so he, sh- he also should be contrasted with the writer in the fourth seal. The fourth seal, the rider rode a, gr- a pale green horse, and his name was Death, and he was followed by Hades. But this, this rider is named Faithful and True. And by the way, this one's not alone. This one has brought an army with him. And he has been named King of King and Lord of Lords. And throughout the rest of Revelation 19, they will defeat the beast and his armies. They will take out everyone who has come against the Lord. Remember, the beast has rallied countless numbers of people to come to their side, his side and go make war against the Lord. But as we finish out 19, the writer and his army say, Mm-mm. you may think you have a chance to win. You may think that you can overcome me and overcome my father and overcome what is inevitable, but guess what? Not gonna happen. And so he destroys them and he subdues them. And we're going to pick up in chapter 20, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today, and we're going to end at the beginning of chapter 21. Home stretch, we're almost there. So as we begin in chapter 20, it says this, John then saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss. He closed it and put a seal on it so that that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. And after that, he must be released for a short time. Satan's trinity shows up here. We discussed how that unfolded in the previous chapters, right? We see the dragon, the eternal foe of God. When he says it's this ancient serpent, that word implies that he's been here since the very, very beginning. It's the serpent, the deceiver of humanity from the very beginning of time. And it's the devil or Satan, the accuser of both man and God. You know, that's literally what Satan means, right? It means the accuser. There could hardly be, one author says, there could hardly be a more complete description of putting Satan out out of commission insofar as his influence on human beings and human history is concerned. He can't do anything. He no longer has an influence. Can you imagine what the world would look like if Satan no, had, no longer had any influence anywhere? Not on the world. Not on you. Not on me. Nothing. He's gone. He's history. Except for this really peculiar statement right here at the end. After that, he must be released for a short time. I don't know about you. Yes! I read that and I go, why? Right? We're there. It's done. Move on. Right? This was what we're all hoping for. We're hoping for this. Why? Why? If we were to read on in chapter 20 in verses 7 through 10, we see him come back up. We see him be released. And he goes out into the world and talks about Gog and Magog and him creating more problems, more difficulty, stirring up more hearts against the Lord, making more wars, trying just this one last time to come up against him, to fight against God, to try to win Why would God allow that? Why would God allow Satan to try one last time? Say what? Ah, display his power. Absolutely. He wants to make it abundantly clear that no matter how strong Satan thinks he is, because remember, Satan is trying to be who? He's trying to be God. He wants it abundantly clear. But, but why? Why would he do that? There's more to it, I think. I think you're right, but I think there's more to it. I think that God really does Before he creates the new heaven and the new earth, which we sang about, and if you read the scriptures during the prelude this morning, and where we're going to end up is the new heaven and new earth. Before he does that, he needs to root out everything that could possibly be underneath. He needs to make abundantly sure that when this new creation begins, when this new earth becomes a reality, that there is nothing left that might Distract or destroy it we talk about often the perfection of the garden of Eden but I've actually heard one, more than one theologian talk about how maybe Eden wasn't perfect there was a downfall what was the downfall the serpent was present Satan was present in the new heaven and the new earth he will not be he will not be there, which also leaves us wondering why in the world did God let Satan be in the garden or be alive at all? Well, I really do believe he loves his creations. I really do believe, and we talked about this last week, even Satan, the Lord would love to see come back to him. And he wants to give him Every opportunity to do that. If for no other reason, so that he knows he's done his best. And so that Satan knows without a shadow of a doubt that he has chosen the path he is on and he cannot possibly say, God didn't give me enough chances. God gave him every chance under the sun. wonder what it would be like if we, too, gave everyone every chance under the sun. N.T. Wright says, once more we need to say the release of Satan, though unexpected and unwelcome to us, well, at least unwelcome to me, seems to be part of the strange divine plan to ensure that all evil, every trace is rooted out of the world allowing a great transformation into a new heaven and a new earth to take place. The Satan, the accuser, must do all he can, and then he too must be destroyed. In verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20, we see Satan and those who follow him all meet their end in this lake of fire. But I want to kind of do what I call a crazy Ivan I want to go back to verses 4 through 6 of chapter 20 because that's what happened this is this really interesting time this thousand year reign the thousand year reign has caused more consternation (laughs) among Christians than I could possibly begin to list when does it start when does it end does Jesus come before? Does he come after? Does he come during? What happens during all of this? What will all this look like? Where is it? How does it work? And, and there are people who have gone to blows over this. I'm not going to go to blows over this. Because at the end of the day, I think... Making too much of the, the physical time frames ignores the fact that God's victory is inevitable. So, if you had to list for yourself, are you a premillennial? We're going to get into crazy biblical theologian terms. Are you premillennial? Or are you postmillennial? Or are you amillennial? Those are the three big ones. I would say, I am promillennial. God's going to do stuff, God's going to win. There's going to be this window in time where we're going to get to kind of see a preview. Yes, but will it be a literal thousand years? I don't know that there's enough information to tell us that. I'm not going to get into semantics and arguments about whether or not he comes before or he comes after. God's going to do it. God's going to win. Let us not lose sight of that truth. Are the other things fun to talk about? Well, yeah, I'm a Biblical Bible nerd. I'll talk about them all day. But the, the point of revelation is God wins. And let's not let those other conversations pull that asunder or cause us to forget that truth. So let's look at this thousand years. It says in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 20, it says, Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in this first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is where Rob first takes exception with the the translation he's reading. In verse 4, In the CSB, it says, um, people were seated on them who were given authority to judge. And you might say, well, why didn't you pick a different translation? I'm going to be very honest. There's no translation of, of the scriptures that I think is perfect. Because who's right? Rob. Rob's right. I'm kidding because there are men and women involved and we are trying very hard to get the word of God accurately translated into English, right? And so as much as we try to divorce ourselves from our own perspective, sometimes they kind of leech in. Literally in Greek, it says, a judgment was given to them. They were not given authority to judge, a judgment was given to them. The NASB says it that way. A couple of other translations say it that way as well. And my belief is that that translation is accurate. A judgment was given to them. What's the difference between they have been given authority to judge and a judgment was given to them? If they've been given the authority to judge, they get to make the call. If the judgment has been given to them, the call's already been made. See the difference there? If we're going to go back to Revelation 6 verses 9 and 10, when the fifth seal is opened, it speaks of those who had been slaughtered and it repeats that discussion here of them being beheaded, right? But it says, those who had been slaughtered cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? Guess what? A judgment was given to them. This is the answer to those cries, the answer to those prayers. This is the Lord saying, guess what? I have answered that. I have made a judgment. I am here to redeem my people I'm here to make things just, to make things right. That's what the writer was doing as he came in at the end of chapter 19, right? He's bringing justice, making war against injustice, disjustice, injustice, making war against evil. He's coming in and making things right. This verse in chapter 4 is the Lord saying, I am here to answer your cry." I am here to make things right. We constantly kind of, I don't know about you, but I wonder sometimes how this world, we could even consider it to be a just place. Because it's broken. We want it to be just. Part of the problem is that it's fallen. Part of the problem is that justice is in the eye of the beholder sometimes. One of the things I tell my kids often when they say something's not fair is I say fair is a myth. There's no such thing as fair because fair is completely subjective. What's fair in my mind may not be what's fair in yours. Make sense? So if you're waiting for the world to be fair, how long do you think you're going to wait? At least until this part, when God makes it just. When God hands down his judgment. You'll get a glimpse, a window during this thousand years. And then Satan will try one more time. And then God will make it permanent. So who are these people that are sitting there who have been been given a a judgment, well, they're the faithful. If you go all the way back to, to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, it's those who are persistent in their testimony of Jesus, those who hold to the truths of God. He ends almost every discussion around those churches with, with those who have ears, let them hear. Are you listening to what I'm telling you? And, and kind of hints that it's something he says very, very clearly in chapter 3, verse 21. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He is giving them. This is it. This is the place where he says, if you have persisted, if you have followed through even despite The darkness of this world, even despite all the Satan and all of his minions trying to lead you sideways, if you have made it, then I'm with you. You are faithful to me, and you will not be disappointed with what you find. Sometimes getting to the next step in our faith is a matter of choosing to be faithful, even when it seems hard even when it seems like, wouldn't it be just so much easier to drop this Jesus thing for a minute and go do what I want to do? We are called to be faithful, and that may be the hardest part of what it means to be a Christian in this fallen world, is to remain faithful no matter what happens, no matter what we see. And, and I want to say, though, that that's, that's, a, that's a freeing thing to know that Your righteousness will be determined by your faithfulness, not by your perfection. Not by your moments where you're confused or your moments where you're upset or moments where you do things that aren't exactly what God would want you to do because um, we've all got those moments. Your righteousness is determined by your faithfulness. Do you persevere? Do you persist? do you continue to walk with God with everything you've got, which in some moments is a lot and in some moments isn't, but do you walk with God? These faithful faithful are those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's what He says of them in Revelation 14.4. In Revelation 17.14, He says, they are those who are called, chosen, and faithful these people who are sitting on the throne for this thousand year reign, they are the faithful. Where are they? Probably the earth. It's a good guess. But it is a guess. It's an educated guess. In Revelation 5 verses 9 through 10, you see we're getting near the end of the book, right? And so this is where the stuff that was at the beginning starts to all kind of come together. All the moments. So there's going to be a lot of reference here from what happened at the beginning and what has happened throughout. This is the bow getting tied on the end of everything, right? So it should be normal that he's referring back to everything he's already seen, everything God has already shown him. It says in Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered. This is, he's speaking of Jesus, right? You were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and every language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. I really think that's, this is the answer to that. He made a promise. Now he's fulfilling it. He said it would get done. Guess what? It is. No questions asked. So what do these people do for a thousand years? There's no evil in the world. No influence from Satan. It's just God and his saints. What do they do for a thousand years? Any guesses? Huh? Praise him is a great answer. I love that. They praise him. Any other guesses? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. John never tells us what they're going to do for this thousand years. Or if he does, or if he knows, John may not even know, but if he knows, it's in that part that God said, you can't tell them. Don't tell anybody what you saw here. We don't know what they do for a thousand years. Some theologians guess that they, they mediate the salvation of whoever's left. They help others Come to know the Lord. They help them come to know God. They, but, but, but there's no explicit description. It's a guess. We do know that it is without Satan's presence. And then he ha- says there will be a first resurrection. Verse 5, right? It says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. I'm going to, spoiler, he never talks about the second. He talks about a second death. He does not speak of a second resurrection. So if there's a first, does that mean there has to be a second? It's a great question. It's a great question. How many of you were hoping that I was going to tell you everything and give you all the answers today? Doreen, did you raise your hand? Yeah. yeah. God love you. I'm glad you have that kind of hope in me. But John doesn't explain if there's a second, or what the second would look like, or what does it entail, or what does it mean, or why. There Certainly, been conjecture from some that just as Satan is given one last gasp, one last attempt to repent, that maybe humanity, those who did not find the Lord in this life, will have one more chance to repent. One last opportunity. Do I know that for sure? I don't. Does it seem plausible to me? We serve a merciful God who died so that none of us would be lost. Maybe spending a thousand years in the abyss separated from God and watching what the saints are living is a game changer. I don't know. It's purely a guess. Let me be very clear. Purely a guess. Don't go Rob said you're going to get another ch-. I I can't tell you that. You know what I can tell you though? I can tell you that there is a second death. The second death is to be chucked into the lake of fire. I can tell you, though, that the second death is permanent. I can tell you also, without a shadow of a doubt, that coming to choose Jesus in this time, in this life, and to be faithful to him guarantees you will never experience said second death. It will never happen. And I don't know about you, but I'm not willing to be the person who says, well, maybe God's gonna give me one more chance. I'm just gonna roll the dice and hope that he gives me another shot. I think we do that often with God, even in this life. We punt things down the road and say, I'll make a decision later. The emperor Constantine I've told this story before. The Emperor Constantine is the, the, the Roman emperor who's credited with ushering Christianity into the Roman Empire and making it the official religion. Did you know that Constantine, though he used the name of Jesus and flew his flag to gain power and use the power of God and the, and the, the influence of God to win a, a battle, a war between two sides as Rome was splitting down the middle? Do you know that Constantine waited till he was on his deathbed to repent and to be baptized? That's some risky stuff. To wait till the very last possible minute, and I think some of us are under this delusion that we should do that. that That's a good idea. That we will have the opportunity to even do that. You don't. You can't make that. That's not a given. You may not have an opportunity tomorrow. You may not have an opportunity in 10 minutes. The truth is we don't know what the next second holds before us, right? This picture that John is seeing that God is presenting to him in Revelation is is intended to be two things. It's intended to be an encouragement to those who are already following God to persevere, to be faithful, to know that eternal life is yours. And that a second death is something you will never, ever have to deal with, ever, under any circumstances, no matter what. I don't know how many more ways I can say it ain't going to happen. It's Guaranteed. But this vision is also supposed to remind us that not even one single second of our future is a given. Some decisions can't wait and be made later. Because if you're waiting till later to decide if you're going to follow Jesus... You're taking a risk with your eternal soul. You're taking a risk that God's going to let you live just long enough and give you an opportunity to be laying there on your deathbed and confess and repent and make Him the Lord of your life and your eternity. Is that a risk you're really willing to take? This is the the reason why we need to be more adamant about telling people about Jesus. This isn't something that can wait till later. This isn't something that can always wait till it's convenient. This isn't something that can wait till the time when I may not offend them. You ever heard of the the um, magician comedian's Penn and Teller? Yeah, subject change. You ready for that? One of them, Penn is a, a Pendulet is an atheist, profound atheist, devout atheist. Will tell you I'm an atheist. Don't want to hear it. I Saw an interview once with him where he was talking about um, Christians who like him. They think he's funny. They really like for him to be in heaven. And so they go tell him all the time. They write him letters. They try to send him proof. They try to convince him that he needs to follow Jesus. And it would be really easy for him to get angry and say, go away, leave me alone. But he says something profound. He says, you know, if they really believe this is true, why wouldn't they take every opportunity to tell me? So my question would would be for you and me is this. Do we take every opportunity to tell others who our Savior is you've met people that do that what do you say about them they're weird they're crazy there's something wrong with them they're Jesus freaks they're Bible thumpers I don't know about you but the picture that John draws here and the calling that Jesus has on his disciples. He gives them one job. Make fun of the youth (laughs) because in Bible quiz, we let them hit the reset button during practice and I'm like, you got one job. Hit the button, right? Did you know that we have one job? We have one job. Our job is to tell people about Jesus our job is to be his hands and feet in this world our job are to be his missionaries because there may not be a second chance and john's message is designed to tell the people here don't miss out on the one you got We were reading this morning with the youth in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter two. He was talking about Jesus, Jesus' choice to give up being in heaven, considering equality with God, something that he wasn't, that he didn't have to have, that he didn't need to pursue, and choosing to come to this world and take the form of a implied lowly human, a man. Not a God, a man. And then to be killed, but not just suffer any death, death on a cross, a humiliating, painful. And to do that for our sake. To do that so that we would have a chance. do we love others enough to stop and say to them I want you to have a chance to this is the message that John wants us to hear so what don't you want, that he want to, what doesn't he want them to miss out on if we go to chapter 21 he sees this vision this is for the people who did not suffer the second death the ones who have chosen to follow Jesus. He says, then I saw a new heaven, and I saw a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, they would passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, a, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a a loud voice from the throne. Look, look, God's God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, "Look, look, I, I'm making everything new." He also said, "Right, because these words, these words are faithful and true. That's the name of Jesus, the writer who came in, right at the start today. His name is faithful and true. He's bringing this message. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. These are the things that we hope for, right? We point people to Jesus. When we're in the midst of our difficulties and our challenges, we say, when I make it to the Lord, when I'm with him, when I'm faithful to him, when this new heaven, this new Jerusalem, when this comes and I'm able to be here, there will be no more tears. There will be no more grief. There'll be no more crying, no more death, no more pain, no more anything bad, no more influence of Satan. We are all going to be in the presence of a holy, true, pure God. We will be surrounded by it. It will permeate every aspect of our being. Some people say, well, what are we going to do in heaven? I'm going to tell you a secret. If sitting in the presence of God isn't enough for you to call it heaven, you might be disappointed. Are we going to do other things? I don't know. Are we going to go see the universe? I hope so. I would love to go see Visit Distant Stars. I'd love to go see Hawaii. Let's get that'd be that'd be close enough. Are we going to be with our friends? I don't know. I hope so. But what I do know is that we will be sitting in the presence of the Lord. That is what God wants for you and for me. That is John wants for the. That is what John wants for those who are lost and hopeless. It might even be what God wants for Satan. <laughs> if you have not yet made that commitment to the Lord, you may not have another minute. And I don't, try to, I don't say that often, but that's the nature of this text. This is urgent. This is a now choice. If you've lost contact with God, Now is the time to come back to God because you don't know what tomorrow holds. It can't wait. It shouldn't wait. And if you've been waiting to tell somebody who your Savior is, is that really good? Should you wait? There are loved ones in your life There are people you meet on the street that are without hope. We carry with us the hope of eternal life, the hope of glory with God, the hope of a Savior to all. Shouldn't we spread it? Amen? Amen Amen and amen. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, I believe our talent offering is going to make their way forward. There's a number of you, so I think I'm going to pray long give you a minute, okay, all right, if you all will join me in prayer, Father God, we've heard your words today, we are reminded that this in fact does require something of us, it requires us to make a choice. We lament often over um, uncertainty and unknowns. You have made the answer known. You have made the choice known. Each of us has an opportunity to come to you. You want us to be your people and you want to be our God. You want to be in presence with us not just in a moment but for all of eternity. And we can make the choice to ignore that gift. And sometimes not making a choice at all is a choice. Lord, I pray that you will move a heart today or two, or five, or ten, or a hundred. That you will move each and every one of us, if we have not yet made a commitment to Jesus, to come to know him right now, knowing what lies ahead, knowing that the certain future you have laid out, that your victory is inevitable, and knowing that we want to be on the winning side. if we have an opportunity, if you want to move a heart today for us to be courageous enough or loving enough to tell others of our Savior, I pray that we will be willing to let you work through us today to do that as well for those that we love are lost and you desire them to be found. Father God, we are thankful for your mercy. It is undeserved and yet eternal. We are thankful for your grace. We are thankful for your faithfulness and we pray that we too can be a faithful people unto you. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.